Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Simon Anthony and Torty Talks. The continuing stories of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy Peoples. In this one, we've got poor old Arthur still trying to find his lost love, Fenchurch. He's working his way through the various versions of Earth and is asking for help. And he's found some in the shape of a rather unpleasant woman. She is currently beating flies away from a large number of extremely unpleasantly smelling objects. It was a hopeless task because each of the flies was about the size of a winged bottle top and all she had was a table tennis bat. Also, she seemed half blind. Every now and then, by chance, a wild thrashing would connect with one of the fly's richly satisfying thunk. The fly would hurtle through the air and smack itself against the rock face a few yards from the entrance to a cave. She gave every impression by her demeanour that these were the moments she lived for. Arthur watched this exotic performance for a while from a polite distance, and then at last tried giving a gentle cough to attract her attention. The gentle cough courteously meant unfortunately involved first inhaling rather more of the local atmosphere than he had so far been doing, and as a result he erupted into a fit of raucous expectoration and collapsed against the rock face, choking and streaming with tears. He struggled for breath, but each new breath made things worse. He vomited, half-choked again, rolled over his vomit, kept rolling for a few yards, and eventually made it up onto his hands and knees and crawled panting into slightly fresher air. Excuse me, he said. He got some breath back. I'm really am most trembly sorry. I feel a complete idiot. And he gestured helplessly towards the small pile of his own vomit lying spread around the entrance to her cave. What can I say, he said. What can I possibly say? This at least had gained her attention. She looked round at him suspiciously, but being half-blind had difficulty finding him in the blurred and rocky landscape. He waited helpfully. Hello, he called. At last she spotted him and grunted to herself and turned back to whacking flies. It was horribly apparent from the way the currents of air moved when she did that the major source of the smell was in fact her. The drying bladders, the festering bodies, and the noxious pottage may all have been making valiant contributions to the atmosphere, but the major olfactory presence was the woman herself. She got another good thwack at a fly, and smacked against the rock and dribbled its insides down in what she clearly regarded, if she could see that far, as a satisfactory manner. Unsteadily, Arthur got to his feet and rushed himself down with a fistful of dried grass. He didn't know what else to do by way of announcing himself. He had half a mind just to wander off again, but felt awkward about leaving a pile of his vomit in front of the entrance of the woman's home. He wondered what to do about it. He started to pluck up more handfuls of the scrubby dried grass that he found here and there. He worried, though, that if he ever ventured near to the vomit, he might simply add to it rather than clear it out. Just as he was debating with himself as to what the right course of action was, he began to realise that she was at last saying something to him. I beg your pardon, he called out. I said, can I help you? She said in a thin, scratchy voice that he could only just hear. 
Uh, I came to ask your advice, he called back, feeling a bit ridiculous. She turned to peer at him myopically and turned back, swiped at a fly and missed. What about? she said. A bigger one, he said. I said, what about? she almost screeched. Well, said Arthur, just sort of general advice, really. He'd said in the brochure, ha, brochure, spat the old woman. She seemed to be waving a bat more or less at random now. Arthur fished the crumpled-up brochure from his pocket. He wasn't quite certain why. He'd already read it, and she, he expected, wouldn't want to. He unfolded it anyway in order to have something to frown thoughtfully at for a moment or two. The copy in the brochure twittered on about the ancient mystical arts of the seers and sages Hawalius, and wildly overrepresented the level of the accommodation available in Hawalian. Arthur still carried a copy of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy with him, but found when he consulted it, the entries were becoming more obtuse and paranoid. Something was wrong somewhere. Whether it was in his own personal unit, or whether it was something or someone going terribly amiss, or perhaps just hallucinating at the heart of the guided organisation himself, he didn't know. But one way or another, he was even less inclined to trust it than usual, which meant that he trusted it not one bit and mostly used it for eating his sandwiches off when he was sitting on a rock staring at something. The woman had turned and was walking slowly towards him now. Arthur tried without making it too obvious to judge the wind direction and bobbed about a bit as she approached. Advice, she said. Advice, eh? Uh, yes, said Arthur. Yes, that... He frowned again at the brochure as if to be certain that he hadn't misread it and stupidly turned up on the wrong planet or something. The brochure said, The friendly local inhabitants will be glad to share with you the knowledge and wisdom of the ancients. Peer with them into the swirling mysteries of past and future time. There were some captions as well, but Arthur had been far too embarrassed actually to cut them out or try to present them to anybody. Advice, eh? said the old woman again. Just sort of general advice, you say? On what would you want to do with your life, that sort of thing? Uh, yes, said Arthur, that sort of thing. Bit of a problem I sometimes find, if I'm being perfectly honest. He was trying desperately with tiny darting movements to stay up with her. She surprised him by suddenly turning sharply away from him and headed off towards her cave. You'll have to help me with the photocopier, she said. What, said Arthur. The photocopier, she repeated patiently. You'll have to help me drag it out. It's solar-powered. I have to keep it in the cave, though, so the birds don't shit on it. I see, said Arthur. I'll take a few deep breaths if I were you, muttered the old woman as she stomped into the gloom of the cave mouth. Arthur did as she advised. He almost hyperventilated. In fact, when he felt he was ready, he held his breath and followed her in. The photocopier was a big old thing on a rickety trolley. It stood just inside the dim shadows of the cave. The wheels were stuck obstinately in different directions. The ground was rough and stony. Go ahead and take a breath outside, said the woman. Arthur was going red in the face trying to help her move the thing. He nodded in relief. If she wasn't going to get embarrassed about it, then neither, he was determined, would he. He stepped outside and took a few breaths, then came back in to do more heaving and pushing. He had to do this quite a few times, till at last the machine was outside. The sun beat down on it. 
The old woman disappeared back into her cave again and brought with her some mottled metal panels, which she connected to the machine to collect the sun's energy. She squinted up into the sky. The sun was quite bright, but the day was hazy and vague. It'll take a while, she said. Arthur said he was happy to wait. The old woman shrugged and stomped across to the fire. Above it, the contents of the tin can were bubbling away. She poked about at them with a stick. You won't be wanting any lunch, she inquired of Arthur. I've eaten, thanks, said Arthur. No, really, I've eaten. I'm sure you have, said the old lady. She stirred with the stick after a few minutes. She fished a lump of something out of it, blew it to cool it a little bit, and then put it in her mouth. She chewed on it thoughtfully for a bit. Then she hobbled across to the pile of dead goat-like things. She spat the lump out into the pile. She hobbled back slowly to the can. She tried to unhook it from the sort of tripod thing that it was hanging from. Can I help you? said Arthur, jumping up politely. He hurried over. Together they disengaged the tin from the tripod and carried it awkwardly down the slight slope that led downwards from her cave and towards a line of scrubby and gnarled trees which marked the edge of a steep but quite shallow gully from which a whole new range of offensive smells was emanating. Ready? said the old lady. Uh, yes, said Arthur, though he didn't know for what. One, said the old lady. Two, she said. Three, she added. Arthur realised just in time what she intended. Together they tossed the contents of the tin into the gully. After an hour or two of uncommunicative silence, the old woman decided that the solar panels had absorbed enough sunlight to run the photocopier now, and she disappeared to rummage inside her cave. She emerged at last with a few sheaves of paper and fed them through the machine. She handed the copies to Arthur. This is uh, your advice, then, is it? said Arthur, leaping through them uncertainly. No, said the old lady. It's the story of my life. You see, the quality of any advice anybody has to offer has to be judged against the quality of life they've actually led. Now, as you look through these documents, you'll see I've underlined all the major decisions I've ever made to make them stand out. They're all indexed and cross-referenced, see? All I can suggest is that you take the decisions that are exactly opposite to the sort of decisions that I've taken, then maybe you won't finish up at the end of your life, she paused and filled her lungs with a good shout, in a smelly old cave like this. She grabbed up at her table tennis bat, rolled up her sleeve, stomped off to a pile of dead goat-like things, and started to set about the flies with vim and vigour. The last village Arthur visited consisted entirely of extremely high poles. They were so high that it wasn't possible to tell from the ground what was on top of them, and Arthur had to climb three before he found one that had anything on top of it at all, other than a platform covered with bird droppings. Not an easy task. He went up the poles by climbing on the short wooden pegs that had been hammered into them in slowly ascending spirals. Anybody who was a less diligent tourist than Arthur would have taken a couple of snapshots and sloped right off to the nearest bar and grill. We could also buy a range of particularly sweet and gooey chocolate cakes to eat in front of the ascetics. But, largely as a result of this, most of the ascetics are gone now. In fact, they had mostly gone and set up lucrative therapy centres on some of the more affluent worlds in the northwest ripple of the galaxy. Where the living was easier by a factor of about 17 million, and the chocolate was just fabulous. 
most of the aesthetics, it turned out, had not known about chocolate before they took up aestheticism. Most of the clients who came to the therapy centres knew about it all too well. At the top of the third pole, Arthur stopped for a breather. He was very hot and out of breath, since each pole was about 50 or 60 feet high. The world seemed to swing vertiginously around him, but it didn't worry Arthur too much. He knew that, logically, he could not die until he'd been to Stavromula Beta, and had therefore managed to cultivate a merry attitude towards extreme personal danger. He felt a little giddy perched fifty feet up in the air on top of a pole, but he dealt with it by eating a sandwich. He was just about to embark on reading the photocopied life history of the Oracle, when he was rather startled to hear a slight cough behind him. He turned so abruptly that he dropped his sandwich, which turned downward through the air, it was rather small by the time it stopped by the ground. About thirty feet behind Arthur was another pole, and, alone among the sparse forest of about three dozen poles, the top of each was occupied. It was occupied by an old man who, in turn, seemed to be occupied by profound thoughts that were making him scowl. Uh, excuse me, said Arthur. The man ignored him. Perhaps he couldn't hear him. The breeze was moving about a bit. It was only by chance that Arthur had heard the slight cough. Um, hello, called Arthur. Hello? The man at last glanced round at him. He seemed surprised to see him. Arthur couldn't tell if he was surprised and pleased at him, or just surprised. Are you open? called Arthur. The man frowned in incomprehension. Arthur couldn't tell if he couldn't understand or couldn't hear. I'll uh, pop over, said Arthur. Don't go away. He clambered off the small platform and climbed down quickly, the spiralling pegs writhing at the bottom, quite dizzy. He started to make his way over to the pole on which the man was sitting, and suddenly realised that he had disorientated himself on the way down and didn't know for certain which one it was. He looked around for landmarks and worked out which the right one. He climbed it. It wasn't. Damn, he said. Excuse me, he called out to the old man again, who was now straight in front of him and forty feet away. Got lost. I'll be with you in a minute. Down he went again, getting very hot and bothered. When he arrived, panting and sweating, at the top of the pole that he knew for certain was the right one, he realised that the man was somehow or another mucking him about. What do you want? shouted the old man crossly at him. He was now sitting on top of the pole that Arthur recognised was the one that he had been on himself with eating a sandwich. How did you get over there? called Arthur in bewilderment. You think I'm going to tell you just like that when it took me forty springs, summers and autumns of sitting on top of a pole to work out? What about winter? What about winter? Don't you sit on top of the pole in winter? Just because I sit up a pole for most of my life, said the man, doesn't mean I'm an idiot. I go south in the winter, got a beach house, sit on a chimney stack. Uh, do you have any advice for a traveller? Yes, get a beach house. I see. The man stared out over the hot, dry, scrubby landscape. From here, Arthur could just see the old woman, a tiny speck in the distance, dancing up and down, swatting flies. You see her? called the old man suddenly. Yes, said Arthur. I consulted her, in fact. Fact not, she knows. I got the beach house because she turned it down. What advice did she give you? Do exactly the opposite of everything she's done. In other words, get a beach house. 
I suppose so, said Arthur. Well, maybe I'll get one. Hmm. The horizon was swimming in a fetid heat haze. Any other advice, asked Arthur, other than to do with real estate? A beach house isn't just real estate, it's a state of mind, said the man. He turned and looked at Arthur. Oddly, the man's face was now only a couple of feet away. He seemed in one way to be perfectly normal shape, but his body was sitting cross-legged on a pole forty feet away, while his face was only two feet from Arthur's. Without moving his head, without seeming to do anything at all, he stood up and stepped onto the top of another pole. Either it was just the heat, thought Arthur, or space was a different shape for him. Beach house, he said, doesn't even have to be on the beach, though the best ones are. We all like to congregate, he went on, at boundary conditions. Uh, really? said Arthur. Where land meets water, where earth meets air, where body meets mind, where space meets time. We like to be on one side and look at the other. Arthur got terribly excited. This is exactly the sort of thing that had been promised in the brochure. Here was a man who seemed to be moving through some kind of Escher space, saying really profound things about all sorts of stuff. It was unnerving, though. The man was now stepping from pole to ground, from ground to pole, from pole to pole, from pole to horizon, and back. He was making complete nonsense of Arthur's spatial universe. Please stop, Arthur said suddenly. Can't take it, ha, said the old man. Without the slightest movement, he was now back sitting cross-legged on top of the pole, forty feet in front of Arthur. You come to me for advice, but you can't cope with anything you don't recognise. Hmm. So we'll have to tell you something you already know, but make it sound like news, eh? Well, business as usual, I suppose, he sighed and squinted mournfully into the distance. Where are you from, boy? he asked. Arthur decided to be clever. He was fed up with being mistaken for a complete idiot by everyone he ever met. Tell you what, he said. You're the seer. Why don't you tell me? The old man sighed again. I was just, he said, passing his hand around the back of his head, making conversation. When he brought his hand round to the front again, he had a globe of the earth spinning on his up-pointed forefinger. It was unmistakable. He put it away again. Arthur was stunned. How did you... I can't tell you. Why not? I've come all this way. You cannot see what I see because you see what you see. You cannot know what I know because you know what you know. What I see and what I know cannot be added to what you can see or what you know because they are not the same kind. Neither can you replace what you see with what you know because that would be to replace you yourself. Hang on, can I write these down? said Arthur, excitedly fumbling in his pocket for a pencil. You can pick up a copy in the spaceport, said the old man. They got wrecks of the stuff. Oh, said Arthur, disappointed. Well, isn't there anything that's perhaps a bit more specific to me? Everything you see or hear or experience in any way at all is specific to you. You created the universe by perceiving it, so everything in the universe you perceive is specific to you. Arthur looked at him doubtfully. Can I get that at the spaceport too, he said. Check it out, said the old man. It says on the brochure, said Arthur, pulling it out of his pocket and looking at it again, that I can have a very special prayer, individually tailored to me on my special needs. Oh, 
All right, said the old man. Here's a prayer for you. Got a pencil? Yes, said Arthur. He goes like this. Let's see now. Uh, protect me from knowing what I don't need to know. Protect me from even knowing that there are things to know that I don't know. Protect me from knowing that I decided not to know about things that I decided not to know about. Amen. That's it. It's what you pray silently inside yourself anyway, so you may as well have it out in the open. Hmm, said Arthur. Well, thank you. There's another prayer that goes with it, and it's very important, continued the old man, so you better jot that one down too. OK, it goes, Lord, Lord, Lord. It's best to put that bit in just in case, you can never be too sure. Lord, 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 protect me from the consequences of the above prayer. Amen. And that's it. Most of the trouble people get into in life comes from leaving out that last part. Ever heard of a place called Stavromula Beta? asked Arthur. No. Well, thank you for your help, said Arthur. Don't mention it, said the old man on the pole, and vanished. Chapter 10 Ford hurled himself at the door of the editor-in-chief's office, tucked himself into a tight ball as the frame splintered and gave way once again, rolled rapidly across the floor to where the smart grey crushed leather sofa was and set up his strategic operational base behind it. That at least was the plan. Unfortunately, the smart grey crushed leather sofa wasn't there. Why, thought Ford as he twisted himself around in midair, lurched, dove and scuttled for cover behind Hull's desk, did people have this stupid obsession with rearranging their office furniture every five minutes? Why, for instance, replace a perfectly serviceable, if rather muted, grey crushed leather sofa with what appeared to be a small tank? And who was the big guy with the mobile rocket launcher on his shoulder? Somebody from head office? Couldn't be. This was head office. At least it was the head office of the guide. Where these infidim enterprises guys came from, Zarquan knew. Nowhere very sunny, judging from the slug-like colour and texture of their skins. This was all wrong, thought Ford. People connected with the guide should come from sunny places. There were several of them. In fact, all of them seemed to be more heavily armed and armoured than you'd normally expect corporate executives to be, even in today's rough-and-tumble business world. He was making a lot of assumptions here, of course. He was assuming that the big, bull-necked, slug-like guys were in some way connected with Infinitim Enterprises, but it was a reasonable assumption, and he felt happy about it because they had logos on their armour-plating which said Infinitim Enterprises on them. He had a nagging suspicion that this was not a business meeting, though. He also had a nagging feeling that these slug-like creatures were familiar to him in some way. Familiar, but in an unfamiliar guise. Well, he had been in the room for a good two and a half seconds now, and thought that was probably about time to start doing something constructive. He could take a hostage. That would be good. Van Haar was in his swivel chair, looking alarmed, pale and shaken, and probably had some bad news as well as a nasty bang on the back of his head. Ford leapt to his feet and made a running grab at him. Under the pretext of getting him into a good, solid, double, underpinned elbow lock, Ford managed surreptitiously to slip the identities back into Hull's inner pocket. Bingo! He'd done what he'd come to do. Now he just had to walk out of here. OK, he said, I, uh, he paused. 
The big guy with the rocket launcher was turning towards Ford Prefect and pointing it at him, which Ford couldn't help feeling was wildly irresponsible behaviour. He started again and then, on a sudden impulse, decided to duck. There was a deafening roar as flames leapt from the back of the rocket launcher and a rocket leapt from its front. The rocket hurled past Ford and hit the large plate glass window which billowed outward in a shower of a million shards under the force of the explosion. Huge shock waves of noise and air pressure reverberated around the room, sweeping a couple of chairs, a filing cabinet and Colin, the security robot, out of the window. Ah! So they're not totally rocket-proof after all, thought Ford Prefect to himself. Someone should have a word with somebody about that. He disentangled himself from Harl and tried to work out which way to run. He was surrounded. The big guy with the rocket launcher was moving it up into position again for another shot. Ford was completely at a loss for what to do next. Look, he said in a stern voice, but he wasn't certain how far saying things like look in a stern voice was necessarily going to get him. And time was not on his side. What the hell, he thought, you're only young ones, and threw himself out of the window. That would at least keep the element of surprise on his side. Chapter 11 The first thing Arthur Dent had to do, he realised resignedly, was to get himself a life. This meant he had to find a planet he could have one on. It had to be a planet he could breathe on, where he could stand up and sit down without experiencing gravitational discomfort. It had to be somewhere where the acid levels were low and the plants didn't actually attack you. I hate to be anthropic about this, he said to the strange thing behind the desk in the resettlement advice centre on Pendleton Alpha, but I'd quite like to live somewhere where the people look vaguely like me as well, you know, sort of human. The strange thing behind the desk waved some of its stranger bits around and seemed rather taken aback by this. It oozed and glooped off its seat, thrashed its way slowly across the floor, ingested the odd metal filing cabinet, and then, with a great belch, excreted an appropriate drawer. It popped out a couple of glistening tentacles from its ear, removed some files from the drawer, sucked the drawer back in, and vomited up the cabinet again. It thrashed its way back across the floor, slimed its way back into its seat, and slapped the files on the table. See anything you fancy? it asked. Arthur looked nervously through some grubby and damp pieces of paper. He was definitely in some sort of backwater part of the galaxy here, and somewhere off to the left as far as the universe he knew and recognised was concerned. In the space where his own home should have been, there was a rotten hick planet, drowned with rain and inhabited by thugs and bogogs. Even the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy seemed to only work fitfully there, which was why he was reduced to making these sort of inquiries in these sorts of places. One place he always asked after was Stavromula Beta, but no one had ever heard of such a planet. The available worlds looked pretty grim. They had little to offer him because he had little to offer them. He'd been extremely chastened to realise that although he originally came from a world which had cars and computers and ballet and armagnac, he didn't, by himself, know how any of it worked. He couldn't do it. Left to his own devices, he couldn't build a toaster. He could just about make a sandwich, and that was it. There was not a lot of demand for his services. 
Arthur's heart sank. This surprised him because he thought it was already about as low as he could possibly be. He closed his eyes for a moment. He so much wanted to be home. He so much wanted his own home world. The actual earth he'd grown up on not to have been demolished. He so much wanted none of this to have happened. He so much wanted that when he opened his eyes again, he would be standing on the doorstep of his little cottage in the west country of England, that the sun would be shining over the green hills, the post van would be going up the lane, the daffodils would be blooming in his garden, and in the distance the pub would be opening for lunch. He so much wanted to take the newspaper down to the pub and read it over a pint of bitter. He so much wanted to do the crossword. He so much wanted to be able to get completely stuck on 17 across. He opened his eyes. The strange thing was pulsating irritably at him, tapping some kind of pseudopodia on the desk. Arthur shook his head and looked at the next sheet of paper. Grim, he thought. And the next... Very grim. And the next... Oh, now that looked better. It was a world called Bartledan. It had oxygen. It had green hills. It even seemed had a renowned literary culture. But the thing that most aroused his interest was a photograph of a small bunch of Bartledanian people standing around in a village square, smiling pleasantly at the camera. Ha! he said, and held the picture up to the strange thing behind the desk. Its eyes squirmed out on stalks and rolled up and down the piece of paper, leaving a glistening trail of slime all over it. Yes, it said with distaste. They do look exactly like you. That was one in a series of Torty Talks by Simon Anthony, acting at torty.org.uk. 